Are you ready to make positive transformation happen for you? Today, you're going to hear how some of the most successful people in the world have made it happen. Hello, and welcome to Transformational Energy Leadership with Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey. These successful people and Dr. Woolsey will share advice, insights, tips, and tricks designed to help you incite personal action. It's time to bring positive transformational leadership to your life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey. Welcome to Transformational Energy Leadership. You're listening to Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey coming to you from the heartland of America. Now, during the commercial breaks, I encourage you to go to my website. That's transformationalenergyleadership.com, where you can learn more about me and my business offerings and contact me. You can do that by emailing me at mwolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. You can find me here on this platform under the Empowerment Channel, and I'm on social media on LinkedIn and Facebook. Now, today we're talking about data and the role of leadership. And the demand for speed, delivery, and efficiency is testing. And I think even some would argue that it's eroding the human element in many dimensions of our lives. Now, there are digital innovations that have made our lives easier. Let's face it, like going online and managing our accounts, our banking accounts, or using the online one-click option for goods to be delivered to our doorstep with relative speed. And of course, there are some that frustrate us, like having to go through a phone tree to finally reach someone live for customer service or going to the grocery store and having to check out your own groceries. But considering the speed at which digital innovations move, the question is, What should leaders do to restore the soul of business in this age of compounding data? That's what my guest, Rashad Tobakawala, and I will explore today and why it's imperative that leaders restore the soul of business by embracing the best of both worlds. And I'm talking about the digital one of machines and the analog one of people, the spreadsheet and the story. And by doing this, we can create and sustain a great organization. So here's more about Rashad. Rashad most recently served as Chief Growth Officer and Chief Strategist at Publicus Group, an advertising and communications firm with 80,000 employees worldwide, where he is now a senior advisor. As a pioneer in digital marketing, Rashad helped create one of the first interactive groups and digital agencies 20 years ago and has helped launch a series of initiatives over the years from groups focused on gaming, social, mobile, and search engine marketing. In fact, Rashad was named by Business Week as one of the top business leaders for his pioneering innovation, and Time Magazine dubbed him one of five marketing innovators. Rashad is chairman of the Tobaccoala Foundation, which helps over 10,000 people gain better access to health and education in India. And one of the reasons why he's on the show today is he's the author of the recently published book called Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. Without further ado, Rashad, welcome to Transformational Energy Leadership. Thank you very much and thanks for inviting me. I'm thrilled to have you on the show, and I, as I read your book, it's it's a great book, and unlike many others that I've read, because you bring what so many of us in business, and not even business, just many organizations, and us as consumers dealing with all this data that is, that's thrown at us, and in the midst of that, how do we make sense of it? So my first question for you is, what compelled you to write this book? What compelled me to write this book was over the last five years, I began to see across the world, across businesses, that 
businesses were focusing more and more on the left brain, the data side or what I call the spreadsheet side of a business. And a lot of it was because data is so prolific. Uh, Some of the most significant companies that create wealth are data-driven companies. And data has become sort of a global language. So there was this emphasis increasingly on data all the time or the spreadsheet side. What I was noticing was, as a result, they were not focusing enough on the story side of the business, which was the emotions, the culture, the people, and the values. And as a result, there were two things that were happening. One is people were getting less and less engaged and disenfranchised at work. But more importantly, companies that were skewing completely towards the spreadsheet were actually turning out to do worse than ones who balanced the spreadsheet and the story. So, for instance, a Wells Fargo decided that opening accounts was so important that they opened fake accounts. Most recently, as we are now beginning to see, Boeing wanted to bring out a plane as fast as possible to compete with Airbus's A320 EO, and so they forced the 737 MAX through the system. And time after time, when you have companies that focus on the people and the spreadsheet, like a Southwest, tends to do better than one that focuses only on the spreadsheet, like United. So I thought it was time to write a book that said, watch out in this age of technology and digital and data, let's not lose the plot. Mm. And those are compelling examples that I think all of our listeners can connect to, and it makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm curious, because you have been doing and working in marketing and digi- in this digital age for a number of years, when did you first realize the benefits of combining emotions and data, human and machine learning and intuition and algorithms? So this became more prevalent or clear to me about initially 15 years ago. And 15 years ago, there wasn't much about digital or data And the focus was really on long form and other forms of storytelling. And storytelling in many cases tended to be television ads or print ads, you know, the advertising and marketing business. And so there was this bias towards story and communication and telling. And I first began to get involved in the digital and interactive space in the late 1990s, which is now almost 20 years ago, building the case that, hey, listen, trying to figure out who we want to talk to, being relevant to people, figuring out other things besides the story became important. So my first move was really, let's add some spreadsheet, let's add some data, let's add something more than the right brain. So that was the first one. Over the years, after... I became, it became clear that me telling people to focus on companies like, you know, Google and later on Facebook, et cetera, was not some incredible, crazy idea. The, the world changed completely the other way. It was almost like, okay, that's what now matters. It's measurable, targetable, micromanageable. So the other stuff doesn't matter. And about four or five years ago, I started to show people that the only people that actually succeeded combined the two, even in the world of marketing. So, for instance, if you think about marketing campaigns you remember today, 
Most of the marketing campaigns you remember today are from companies like an Apple or a Nike or others, and they were basically utilizing modern methods of finding and distributing messages and interactions, but they were still telling big, big stories. And I began to also realize that the most valuable companies in the world actually were built on desire, and they weren't necessarily built on facts. So a lot of people will tell you that an Android operating system is a more sophisticated and a more cost-effective system than Apple, but Apple captures 80 to 90% of the profits. And the two of the five most valuable companies in Europe are companies that are basically all about desire, which is Kerrig and LMVH, which is Louis Vuitton. And I then tried to show in art and in other places that we as human beings choose with our hearts and we use numbers to decide what we do and not the other way around. And so if it's true, then we should basically make sure we speak to the heart and we speak to the calculating mind. Mm. That makes perfect sense when you think us as human beings, since our, you know, you go back in history, it's all about storytelling. And you're right, you can have a, a spreadsheet, you can have all this information, but when you step back, what What's it really mean? What's so compelling? And what you're saying, it just makes perfect sense. I have to ask you this big question before we go into the break, and that is, what exactly is the soul of a business, and how can businesses restore it? So, to me, the soul of a business is the values, the purpose, the meaning, the emotion, and the culture of a company. And... You often have now heard, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast or lunch or dinner or whatever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think what's extremely important is for companies to get back to where they need to be, and many of them have already got there, there are three areas of focus. The first area of focus is to understand that companies exist for people and people don't exist for companies. That, you know, in effect... Um, the most successful companies are where the employees are both um, happy, feel that they work for a company that they're proud of, and to a certain extent, trust and respect their bosses. So it's A, focusing on people and making sure that leadership and management understands that people is one part of it. The second is, to manage that the future is not the same as the past, and therefore change will come, algorithms will come, machines and data will grow more important. And so how do you basically align with and not compete with the modern machines? And recognize to a great extent that combining the two becomes important, and just talking about people and emotions alone are not important. So in many ways, the soul of a business is when you combine the spreadsheet and the story, which is the left and the right brain. And the third, which is a a thought that I've tried to get people to sort of recognize, is that the only way companies change is when you either change the people or you change people's mindsets. There is no other way to change a company. You don't change a company through M&A. You don't change a company through starting new products. You don't change a company through basically you know, putting out a press release. Companies eventually are people. And as a result, if you want change, you have to manage change 
through analog, carbon-based feeling individuals, even though we're living in a data-driven digital silicon world. And how do we restore it? So restoration is very simply driven by one, sharing and acknowledging that companies that combine the two are more likely to succeed than not succeed. And those are some of the examples I pulled out. Mm -hmm. Second is companies that have gone extremely in the spreadsheet way are now beginning not only to have problems that we've heard of, whether it's a Wells Fargo or Boeing, but companies that we have tended to admire are beginning to have major reputational losses because they're only focusing on a narrow area. I'll give you two examples, uh, Facebook and Amazon. So Facebook today is much less trusted because they've basically just gone math and code to a great extent, uh-huh. right? They, yes. in fact, believe that AI can solve things where now they begin to realize that human beings can beat AI because human beings behave in ways that are forward-looking versus AI is backward-looking to a great extent. But so people will say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, Facebook still has a stock price over $200. It still has you know, millions of businesses on it and billions of dollars going through it. And I said, yes, that's true, but think about the following. Two years ago, if you got a job at Facebook, 90% of the people who got a job at Facebook accepted a job at Facebook. Today, that number is 50%. Hmm. In a world where you require world-class talent, the fact that you can't get one of your top two people anymore because of trust and reputation will impact the business in the future, right? And so the entire idea is to point out to people that companies that have skewed away from it fail, companies that do it succeed, and companies that seem to basically continue to not have soul but are still doing relatively well, there are warning signs and trust and credibility and reputation issues that come to fore. And so one of them is clearly there, which is businesses will not change unless there is a business incentive to change. So that happens to be one. The second one, to a great extent, which actually helps people, is to create incentive plans that actually encourage the new behaviors. A big part of what I suggest to people is if you tell me what your incentive plan is, I will tell you how your company behaves. So if you put out a press releasing saying you're going left, but you pay people to go right, the company will go right regardless of what you say. So the Mm -hmm. second is to have so the incentive systems. And the third is communication. Uh, Later in the book, as I'm sure we'll discuss that, is I have a chapter called Change Sucks how difficult change is. So whenever, you know, people tell you that change is good, it's interesting that people tell you change is good, but they want you to change. My stuff is if it's so good, why don't you change? (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And the reason why change is not good and why it sucks is because when you learn new things, like anytime you look like a fool because you don't know what you're doing. And as we get more senior and established, we don't want to look foolish, but we have to change. But if people recognize that change sucks, that you have to constantly communicate, you've got to constantly train, you've got to constantly incentivize, then it's more likely that things will happen. And those are the three ways to restore. Wow. 
Fantastic. Now, for the listeners out there, if this does not whet your appetite, it should. by the way, we've got some excellent more dialogue, and we're going to talk about why change sucks, as Rashad just preluded there. So over the commercial break, I encourage you to go to my website, that's transformationalenergyleadership.com, and we'll see you back here in two minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Take a closer look at yourself in the present. Your body has its own GPS system designed to help you follow your intuition, align your thoughts, and set your own course. Host Dee Lee is here to be your external guide to this discovery. Take a break, a mindful space to pause, and help bring forth the balance that your life deserves. Listen live for Mindful Space to Pause every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in every week for Inspired Chi Radio with A.J. Johnsack and Tracy Sanginetti. Do you sometimes feel like you have no direction? Every one of us is a soul with a body, not the other way around. Discover your talent and purpose. Tracy and A.J. help you create your most authentic life and master your powerful, positive energy using modalities like hypnosis, tarot, and your own individual Akashic Records. Join us live every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned in to Transformational Energy Leadership. To reach Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey or his guest today, you are welcome to call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, send it to mwoolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back. I'm having a conversation today with Rashad Tabakawala, the author of the book called Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. And in the first segment, we had a really good conversation talking about the benefits of combining emotions and data and human and machine learning, intuition and algorithms, and also what he means about the soul of business. So in this segment, let's talk about ways to stay human in this age of data. Rashad, I have to tell you, when I was reading your book, I chuckled because I really appreciate appreciated the way you called things the way they are with colorful descriptors and in particular one of the chapters you, you titled it talk about the turd on the table so what do you mean and why is this important in business today so when i mentioned the turd on the table so sort of the analogy is or the metaphor or description is we sit around tables often as teams management whatever and we don't actually talk about the real issues. Um, we pretend. 
So there's something brown in the middle of the table and moist, and we think it's a cookie. It's actually a piece of shit, but nobody calls it out as a piece of shit, right? (laughs) Right. And my whole basic belief is it's very important to speak truth to power, and if you feel that something is either wrong or something is amiss, you should speak up. Um, My basic belief is when you do so, companies can avoid a lot of problems because people are speaking up. And you you know, avoid long-term disasters as we're now seeing with the Boeing or Wells Fargo or a whole bunch of other companies. Um, the other reason why speaking up is extremely important today, and it's a line that is not in the book, but I have now recently used, is that diverse faces is not the same as diverse voices. Mm-hmm. And to a great extent, very importantly, all over the world, people are beginning to recognize the importance of diversity. And, you know, as someone who grew up in India and works in the United States, I'm a big believer, you know, in diversity. But diversity is not just of, you know, color and background and sexual orientation or gender, um, but it is also of how you think and whether you have a voice. And it's very important that people can speak up and say what they believe, because if you don't do that, you really don't have a company You just have a bunch of clones. And so this whole idea of speaking truths to power is very, very difficult today because A, we are scared about our bosses. Second, we are not sure whether if we speak up, we'll be punished. Third is obviously sometimes we don't even know what we're talking about. We might be wrong, right? But Mm -hmm. the topics we have to address tend to be extremely emotional. So for instance, some of these are Hey, listen, management, you are not seeing the next generation of competition. It's hard to say that to management. Or management, you are doing things that are borderline, you know, not ethical. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, you know, and these things are very, very hard for people to sort of speak up. And as a result, it's the re- reason why companies don't do well. And so in my book, on this particular chapter, I explain how what the constraints are and how both as an individual, so if you're an employee of a company, how you can do that in ways that are more easy to do versus being scared about it. And as importantly, if you are management, how to create an environment that actually allows people to speak up. That's the turn on the table. I like it very much. And it really points to leadership, having a role in all of this. And it ties Back to the examples you gave earlier about Wells Fargo and other companies that are doing things that, in retrospect, you go, why did you even allow that to happen? And it goes back to what you said, diverse diversity and diverse faces is not the same as diverse voices. It's, it's quite yeah. powerful. You know, in our first segment, we did we alluded to change, and I want to talk about that because, as I said in my introduction, you know, consumers for consumers there are a lot of innovations that make our lives easier, but also others that frustrate us in the workplace. The way that we act and treat and engage with each other is completely different now than you know even five years ago. We use Zoom all the time, instant messaging, and so forth, and it really impacts the way we're making decisions and how we just simply engage with each other. And I think you know, like we said embedded in all that in this world of digital innovation there's it's change change is uncomfortable for you know a lot a lot of people say oh i love change but really if you had people you know 
put their heads down and say, okay, hold up your hand. How many of you really like love change? I bet very few hands would be raised in the air. And so my question for you is, you know, in your book, you call address the reality that change sucks. So what, from your experience and your perspective, do leaders really need to focus on when it comes to people's concerns? So there are three concerns that people basically have about change. The first concern is about whether they are capable of changing. And therefore, you want to provide people with training and other things. Uh, but because, you know, it's very easy to say, okay, change, but then how do I do it? So mm-hmm. the first is I'm not sure whether I can do it. The second is, okay, if I do it, how does this auger for my career. So unless you can tell people that they have something positive coming out of it, and the positive might be you're learning a new skill, you're going through transformation, you might get more money, the company may succeed, but what is it? Why is it good for me? So one is, am I capable of doing it? Second is, why is it good for me? Because otherwise I won't change. That's important. And the third one, which is most important of all, is that at the end of this, will I still be in a company that I believe in? Because sometimes what happens is companies change so radically that you have to be very clear with people saying, hey, you joined a company that was like this. Our strategy makes us go this way. And if you do even number one and two, but we end up in this type of company and it's not the type of company you want, then we can help guide you through. Because a big part of it is you do not want people to have what we call long-term resistance to change. So people who refuse to change because they say, and it's often very senior people, who say this is not the industry or company I recognize. And initially when people protest change, you should actually pay attention because Internal friction against change is not bad. But when people refuse to change, then you have to basically guide them out of the organization. And that's the third part of change. And interestingly, I found that senior people are more likely to resist change than younger people. Really? Yes. And the reason is because if real change is going to happen, then the senior people have to do two things, which are the most remarkably difficult they have to unlearn a lot of the ways they've actually operated, which is number one. And unlearning okay. is much more difficult than learning. But the second is they got to actually start working hard and making mistakes. And at some particular stage, while they all work hard, they have all kinds of handlers to make them look good. And now you won't necessarily look good doing new things. Absolutely. And what you're getting at is just the pure core of being human beings. And that's what your book is all about, is that there's this emotional side that's so powerful. And when you talked about those three things, am I capable and how does this fit in my career? And well, I like working for this company after it. You're getting at that. It's those primal things inside of us that, you know, is triggered by the amygdala or what, what have you in the brain. And it makes perfect sense what you're talking about. And those need to be attended to. Because we're working with humans. I, you know, a lot, what I really appreciate in your book as well is you, t- you talk about so many dimensions of this. And one is you, you explore this area of time. And let's face it, as we know, in today's age, things move at a rapid speed. And 
when we think about time and it's it seems like it's just so not there if you will and what I'd like for you to do, if you wouldn't mind, is give us a flavor of ways that we can begin to manage in this age of data, to manage our time. Yeah, so the opening thought is really this. The way we spend our time is the way we spend our life, right? Mm-hmm. And today, like never before, we have a lot of stuff happening, which is we have much more options, which is how we spend our time. Uh, you know, someone said the difficulty in life is choice. And today there are so many things that both we can do or there are so many things that people are claiming on us. So what I basically ask people to think about is first uh, is not to do a few things. The first is not to be controlled by your inbox or your calendar. You know, we often don't do anything but what comes into our inbox or what's been put on our calendar, which means some sort of puppet master is playing with us and we have become a marionette. That's number one. Number two, there is a great deal of pride all across the world and also in the United States about how people say how busy they are and how overscheduled they are. And my basic belief is do not confuse activity with achievement or busyness with productivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the third and most important is let's sort of focus on what needs to be done versus what we should do. And so to a great extent, that's, you know, the urgent versus the important. Uh, and we have to keep those in mind. But what we tend to basically do is what's urgent, what's filling up our email and inbox, and how do we basically show that we're in a flurry of activity before people basically believe that we're, um, you know, important. And I've studied this both in my own career, looking at people and then reading a lot about it. And, and literally, I have basically thought about how simultaneously you have to be very disciplined with time and undisciplined. Disciplined in the fact that you decide what you're going to do and not do, but undisciplined is at times you don't overschedule. You know, you sort of walk around, you do what they need to do. Now, business, most business leaders... Uh, basically say the way they like to spend their time, ideally, is to think about the long-term success or vision for their business, to basically think about employees, right? Mm -hmm. And basically to start thinking about how they themselves can get better. That's what they want to do. But almost none of them spend time on that. They spend time on other things. And so I'm reminding people that What is most beneficial to the business if you're a leader are those things. Long-term vision, you getting better and working with your teams and with your clients. But instead, they do other things. So I think about time as money. And I said, you know, to a great extent, the way we do budgeting, if you're going to add something, you take away something. So my belief is whenever you add a commitment, a meeting, or anything, You don't add it without actually eliminating something else. Simple Uh exercise. It is. Don't add without eliminating, which is number one. Number two is could it be that you decide when you you do things. So a lot of people basically say, how do you do so much all around the world, all this multiple stuff? And I said, because I have a very simple strategy over the years. And the first strategy basically is I don't do anything unless someone basically asks me. 
right? I just don't go around and meddle in everybody's business. A lot of managers basically constantly check in and what's going on. My whole stuff is I'm like a just-in-time person. I'm asleep till you need me, and then I'll pay attention. So one is when you're needed, people will call you. And obviously, at some particular stage, you, know, you can monitor if they've completely decided to leave you out. But that's sort of one part of it. But to me, the important stuff is when you do stuff, you should scale. So when you do things, you want to do stuff where you basically are doing things that you're very good at and trying to scale through delegation of people or scale where you can scale through technology. That's very, very important. And the other one is really ask yourself, is this a form of comparative advantage? Do I actually have to do this? And a big part of what I try to do, which, by the way, it turns out to be great for career growth, though initially it looks like pretty stupid, is anything I do, I try to find somebody in my company or my team who does it better, and I ask them to do it. Right? And so right. people yeah. will say, oh, my God, you are eliminating yourself out of a job. That's one way of looking at it. The other way is I'm freeing myself up for a bigger job. Right? And, it's all, and so yeah. my thing to people is, be aware that a lot of what you're doing with time is because you're insecure about certain things, right? Insecure mm-hmm. about delegating, insecure about looking not busy. Forget about that. If you focus on where you add value, where you can do things, it's a much better way of using time. And if you let someone else control your time, you are actually letting them control your life because that's all you got. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of the you know one of the things we say in the coaching world is when we say oh if I'm not looking busy people won't think that I'm valuable reframe that what's another way to look at it and that's what you're saying and I you know it's a very simple equation that you said here I'm going to keep carrying forward in my life is when you add a meeting something else must drop so is adding that yeah. meeting really imperative that's really really powerful and. Also in your book, which is somewhat counterintuitive, but I'd like for you to talk about it, is you say, add more meetings, schedule more meetings. What do you mean by that? Yes. So it's it's one of the chapters that increasingly a lot of people love because they think it's so counterintuitive. And after they read it, some people said, hey, it should be the opening chapter. I said, I'm not going to open it that way. (laughs) But what what basically, um, and, and the reason I say it, is there are three things about meetings that I've learned over the years, and as someone who's worked for 37 years and do, does 140 flights a year, I've seen meetings all over the world. So the first is that today meetings, most meetings should not actually exist. So the reason we don't want to go to meetings is not because meetings are bad, it's because the meetings we go to should not exist in the first place. So we find ourselves wasting our time. Why do we end up in meetings we should not be in the first place, right? Because of the following. Number one, because of modern technology, more people can be in a meeting than not be in a meeting. And everybody gets invited, and because they are insecure and they don't want to miss, they show up. But there's no reason to be there. That's number one. Number two, most of what is happening in the meeting is people are gathering around a screen or screens and looking at numbers, Mm-hmm. And my basic belief is if you're going to look at a screen with numbers, you could do it at home or you could do it without being in a meeting. For me, a meeting is when you look at somebody else, right? And yes. you have a conversation and a discussion and don't look at a screen. So that's the second one. And because of modern technology, 
everybody looks at PowerPoint and nobody looks at each other. <laughs> and the third one, which is as, as sort of important, so one is you go to meetings that you shouldn't be at anyway. Second is the meeting itself is, but the third is something that people have taught me about meetings, which is completely upside down and wrong. So a lot of these meeting management books say, go to meetings where you can extract value, otherwise don't go to meetings. I turn that upside down. Only go to meetings where you can add value or don't go to meetings. Yes. Now, here's what begins to happen. If you go to a meeting where only you can add value, you automatically, it's a successful meeting because everybody else thinks you're cool because you're adding value. Right? Yes. Second is because you're there, they think you're cool. You've therefore extracted value. That's number one. But number two, because you can add, you, you end up basically going to meetings that are actually productive because you can actually add value. And interestingly, because it's about you helping and adding value, you don't have to see a whole bunch of screens and you're solving problems versus basically being read to. And so that is why I basically say that. But there's another reason for it. And the reason is this. We are now increasingly working in distributed workforces, you know, whether it's hot desking, we work, screens, Slack, etc. Mm-hmm. And a big part of what I worry about is we're losing the human connection. That in effect, when we finally make decisions, it's basically made on human connections and trust. And to do that, you've got to actually meet with people. And so I describe five types of meetings that you should have instead of having those data-driven meetings or meetings around. So a simple meeting is basically, can I help you? Which is the first one that I talked about. Can I help you? I'm coming to the meeting. That's number one. Number two is, I need to tell you something uncomfortable that will help you better, which is called the woodshed meeting. A third is, which hopefully we don't have to do much, is a Jerry Maguire meeting, which is not like yelling and screaming and leaving, but going to a boss and sort of saying, hey, we got a problem, and the problem might be you, or the problem might be the company. That's a third meeting. A fourth meeting, basically, is simply, you know, let's just, there's there's nothing. We just walk into someone and just chat. There's no agenda. And the fifth one, which is my favorite meeting, is the beer meeting, which is people just gather together socially. Mm -hmm. And those are the meetings that people actually remember, and a lot of business gets done, but a lot of relationships get done. And the reason why that's important is if you don't understand someone's tone of voice, if you don't understand their, the way you, they genuflect, where they look, what's actually bothering them, you actually don't actually are having a meeting you're just having a virtual gathering around a screen. It's basically like having a major Twitch event inside the company. Every one of those. I, I, I'm, I'm having goosebumps in a way because what you're saying is we have to remember, go back to that human dimension that makes us human beings. And in that, that last one where you were talking about the beer meeting, that's where the relationships form. That's what people remember. It also go back to your earlier message is about the story and the story gets reinforced of what it is that you want people to remember. So listeners out there, have more meetings, but think about the value. What value do you add? And if you're going to stare at a screen, as Rashad just said, is that really necessary? And and I, you couldn't have put it more bluntly there. Rashad, I have to come back and ask you. So in the title of your book, you have the word soul in it. And so I have to ask you, how do we lead with soul? You know, in your book, you call, you have this concept called the notion of emotion. 
What do you mean by all this? So if you look back, and regardless of whether you've been in business for two years or 22 years, or are old fogies like you and me, if you look back, what you will sort of determine is that your best leaders, your best bosses, and what you remember are almost all the time emotional things. You'd almost mm-hmm. never remember any of the rational things. You know, it's that famous sort of saying, right? People will remember how you made them feel, not what you, you know, said. Yeah, my Angelou. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And so to a great extent, over the years I've discovered, both in my own experience, but as you know, in my book, it's not just my own experience and my observed experience, but I've spent a lot of time reading a lot of literature, is that there are certain things that matter. So people, both in companies, people everywhere, are looking for bosses or looking for leaders who are honest, which is an emotion. They're looking for people who are empathetic. They're looking for people who are inspiring. And they're looking for people who are vulnerable. Right? And those are all emotions. They're not necessarily looking for people who are decision makers. They're not looking for people who are very quantitative. That's not what they look for in a leader. And so my whole thing is there's a very big difference between being a boss and a leader. There's a very big difference between being a skilled person and a leader. And the first are necessary. You have to be capable. You have to be skilled. But that doesn't make you a leader. Because here's my big insight. People follow people. They don't follow titles. Mm -hmm. And so that's why this notion of emotion. And then the bigger insight here is actually brought about by a line I read many years ago in a famous novel called Anna Karenina, which is all happy families are the same and all unhappy families are happy in their own way, right? (laughs) And what I determined was that good bosses tend to have these, uh, you know, these characteristics. But then there are these bad bosses that have their own characteristics. But my big insight was that you and I have in us a good boss and a bad boss. So I believe any individual can be a good boss and under the wrong circumstances can become a bad boss for some time because it can be either a pressure situation, a pitch, you know, you haven't slept well, you've got like family issues or whatever. And so there'll be days where you'll end up being a bad boss. So what I tell people is try to remember what a good boss is, things like, you know, vulnerability and and empathy and inspiration and honesty, but also think about bad boss. And in that, I describe bad bosses having four characteristics. And most bad bosses are particularly bad in one particular way. So one is the narcissist. So the narcissist is all about the boss. The second one is the Oscar contender. The boss who basically sighs and slams doors and yells. Mm. Uh, The third one is the micromanaging fiddler. Nothing is done until they fiddle around with everything you do. And the last one is the double-crossing assassin. You know, someone who tells you one thing and does the other. And each of us on a particular day may have done one of these bad things, right? And right, we, are, yeah. we should be aware of it and then apologize to people because we are human beings and we can't have that. But at the same stage, we all have the possibility of being a good boss. So in effect, you can improve to become a great boss but you have to keep in mind what the bad and the good is. And that's what I call leading with soul and the notion of the notion. 
And all of us have it with this elevator awareness that you just brought to us. Hey, Rochelle, we're at a a commercial break. When we come back, I want to touch on energy and then let's wrap things up with some tangible things that we can all do to bring that soul and humanism back to this age of data. So for everyone out there, stay tuned. We'll see you back here on the other side of this commercial break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Life-changing events can have positive and or negative repercussions. When they happen, they can feel elating or devastating to those affected. It can also get in the way of your personal and professional life. On Life-Altering Events with host Frank Zakari, we examine the scope of these events and discuss how to move forward in the wake of the opportunities presented. It's never too late to get started or pick up the pieces and move forward. Listen Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Broaden your mind. Open your heart for a greater understanding of how to express your pure and authentic nature. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Simron, author, publisher, and life mentor, broadens minds and opens hearts to a greater understanding of life, consciousness, and humanity. 1111 Talk Radio is every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 1111 Talk Radio. You are not on a journey. You are the journey. You are experience experiencing itself. It's quite common for people to wonder whether happiness is real or just an illusion. Yet we all have an inner voice that is telling us that we need to change. Where to begin? Start by taking time out of your schedule every week for Revelations and Wonders, Secrets to Life and Happiness, with host Fabian Edju. There is a true beauty within your soul, and happiness flows from inside. We'll help you find that new confidence within. Listen every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Transformational Energy Leadership. To reach Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey or his guest today, you are welcome to call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, send it to mwoolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to the final segment of today's show. We've been having a really insightful discussion about restoring the soul of business in this age of data. My guest today, Rashad Tobakawala, has talked about the benefits and distractors data can cause and ultimately, ultimately, leaders, you have a choice on how you want to go forward into the future. And Rashad, one thing I want to touch on, touch upon before we wrap up the show is I always talk about energy on the show, that all of us have powerful anabolic energy within us, and we also have destructive energy, that catabolic sense of energy. And depending on the situation, either level of energy may show up. And as you think about the work you're doing, you think about leaders in this age of data, what are your thoughts about 
the power of energy? I think energy is extremely important and there are three forms of it. The first form of energy basically is the physical energy where people basically are always looking to follow people who are optimistic, positive, with a let's make this happen attitude. That's number one. The second form of energy basically is sort of the psychic energy, which is people basically uh, want to feel that you are someone who is someone they can trust, someone they feel good about. It's sort of a positive halo. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, And that's the second form of energy. And the third form of energy, which is uh, as sort of important, is an individual's own energy of which I've basically sort of figured out that it's some combination of emotional, physical, and mental slash spiritual. And if you can integrate those, you basically are someone that people, both you are happy with yourself, but you're also someone that people want to follow and people want to basically believe. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that, that individual piece. So now as we think about, we've covered a lot of different topics today from the beginning of the show to where we are now. And Rashad, if now you step back and think about what would be three to four things that the listeners, all of us, could immediately begin to do to be transformational leaders in this age of data? So the four things that I would suggest that people do to be transformational leaders in this age of data is first is to not forget that all of us are humans, we are dealing with humans, and that the scorecard is not basically what the scoreboard says, but how you focus on the ball or the game that you are playing. So focus on the people in an organization, which also means focus on yourself and recognize that you're analog and carbon-based and uh, a feeling individual. That's number one. The second one, which is extremely important, is recognize that change is difficult and that it does suck. And the more successful you are, the more it sucks, but very good people actually manage change. And therefore, both forgive yourself and, you know, do that. The third is you must upgrade your mental operating system. Today, we are on the 13th operating system for Apple iOS, the 10th operating system for Macintosh, uh, Catalina. But most human beings are probably on their second or third operating system. What separates us from animals or monkeys is not our stomachs, but our brains. And while we spend a lot of time figuring out what goes into our stomach and how much we exercise, which is very important, do we actually figure out what goes into our brains and how we use that? And therefore, my third is we must invest at least an hour a day in learning new things. And finally, the fourth is please make sure we recognize that the problems that we sometimes, that this is a world where there's great opportunity. I think the world is much better off today than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Yes, there are difficulties. But in this world, there are some particular issues that are pretty prevalent and that we individually can help on. One of which is we are living in a world which is becoming a little bit more unequal than it's like to be. Second is there is a breakdown in trust. And third, there's an increased polarization. And to do that, the best way is to try to, one, think about why somebody else's case is true and not yours. So always build a case for the other point of view versus saying the other point of view is wrong. That's a polarization issue. 
The second is if you're willing to talk to somebody in common ground, you can build trust, which becomes extremely important. And when you have trust and a decline in polarization, you're more likely to have a less unequal society. So that's what I would suggest. Mm. And that very last point, it's so vivid. We see it all around the world right now with the polarization of things going on. And when you talk about really trying to understand the other point of view, a hard exercise, but it's so worthy of doing, is to ask questions without an agenda, to be truly curious. And I, I often encourage my clients to say, when you start questions with what, where, when, why, how, you know, the why one is often put that last but if you start with what what is it that you know, you know when you start a question with that is so much easier to come from a place of curiosity rather than having your agenda come across to them so i it's a those four points are oh so very powerful you know you you queued up in your number three when you were talking talking about our operating systems and having to invest and learn i did get a chuckle when you said in in your book you identified that what was it? It was something about slime. That the best, the best ideas come from slime. Yes. So, I, I have a belief there are three things about the future. So the first one is, the we have to align to the future. The future doesn't align with us. I try to remind people: if you think the future sucks, the future doesn't care whether you think it sucks or not. Either you adapt to it, or you will not succeed. The second one is the future does not fit in the containers of the past, which is why our organizational design built around yesterday's model versus tomorrow. But the third, the point that you basically have noted, is the future comes from the slime and does not come from the heavens. Okay? Uh, now, that is both true if you believe in, uh, you know, uh, the, the way life actually happened, uh, which is in Darwinism, etc. But as importantly, most companies and most people, when they get disrupted, they do not get disrupted because they're looking at people above them or their current competitors, they get disrupted from people that they're not watching. So IBM did not see Microsoft, for instance. Nokia mm-hmm. and BlackBerry did not see Apple. Gillette did not see Dollar Shave Club. And a big part of what we do as a society is we constantly are looking at the royalty and we're trying to show off and preen like peacocks, but it'll be some frog that'll come and get you. So spend time with younger people, spend time with people who are less gifted people who are less lucky than you and constantly remember that the future will come from the slime and not the heavens. Perfectly said. Rashad, I can't thank you enough for all the wisdom that you've shared with us and we could easily do a whole nother show because we didn't tap into his book. It's just rich and full of good insights and I encourage all the listeners out there. It's a, a book worth reading. It's called bringing or it's called restoring the soul of business and really staying human in this age of of data is such a good great book Rashad before we go if the listening audience wants to get in contact with you what's the best way for them to reach you Uh, there are three ways basically one is on Twitter which is at Rashad the second is they can basically just follow me on LinkedIn and I'll follow them back or reach out to me uh, and the third is my email is Rashad at gmail.com. Fantastic. Uh, version that they basically like. Yes. And, and we all have our, <laughs> our own purpose. And the idea would be if they, of course, buy my book, which all they have to do is type in Rashad on any search engine. 
Fantastic. And there you go. There you have it. It's fresh off the press, and he'll be starting his speaking circuit here soon while we're actually in the midst of it. Rashad, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. And and for all the listeners out there, if you have a topic, a guest that you would like to have me bring onto the show, please send me your, your information, your requests, and be happy to do that. So until the next time we all meet, harness that positive energy and lead transformation, and we'll talk again with you all next week. Thank you for listening to Transformational Energy Leadership. Please join Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey again for another edition next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week.